it's not surprising at all that it's tax that's the first sort of wedge to get a foot in the door. Courts and the government in general are, of course, sympathetic to the argument that they should be able to extract tax. That's what they do. That's what's funding the government. For sure, this has been, from my viewpoint, it's just been a long time coming. It's been very expected. It's this road of loss of financial privacy that's going to be the, the biggest battlefield over crypto, I think, over this decade. There are no borders with Bitcoin, and from the beginning, its disruption has been global. Tune in to Borderless as Coindesk reporters Anna Badikova and Danny Nelson dissect their top most recent Bitcoin and cryptocurrency stories from around the world. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder that Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Welcome to Borderless. I'm Anna Badikova from Moscow, Russia. And I'm Danny Nelson from the US. And today we're joined by Kim Nilsson from Tokyo. Am I right, Kim? Yeah, that's correct. I'm here in Tokyo enjoying a, the Japanese spring. Oh, that sounds so tempting. Kim Nilsson is actually a legend of the crypto world. He's the Mt. Gox creditor. He's the man who tracked the stolen funds from the Mt. Gox crypto exchange uh, at the time where the blockchain analytics as an industry just basically didn't exist. So we're going to talk with him about what's going on with Mt. Gox rehabilitation right now. In the end of the podcast, we're going to discuss what's going on in Canada, India, Turkey, and maybe other parts of the world as well. So let's get right to the most interesting stuff. The TLDR for those who haven't heard or already forgot what Mt. Gox was. It was actually the first ever crypto exchange that was based in Japan. People from all over the world were trying to figure out how to get their money to Japan to buy Bitcoin there. It also went through the probably the oldest ever crypto exchange hack. Back in 2011, hackers gained access to private keys of Mt. Gox and began pulling out bitcoins from online wallets, and they stole some 630,000 bitcoins over four years, and nobody even paid attention to that. But in February 2014, the Mt. Gox had Mark Arpelis found out that something was going wrong. Mt. Gox suspended trading, closed its website, and filed for bankruptcy protection from creditors. So from 2014, the Mt. Gox users, now called creditors, are trying to get their money back. There were different iterations of that process. So before we get to the latest about that, Kim, I'm curious, can you talk to us about how did you get into crypto and are you still excited about this industry? Sure. Uh, I wasn't that early getting into crypto, honestly. I was looking into the technology and stuff in, say, late 2011, early 2012. That's an ancient era, I would yeah, say. Yeah, that's early in my book. Well, uh, by, by Mt. Gox standards, it was fairly late because by the time I put any kind of money into actually gaining coins, and I used the Mt. Gox exchange for that, it was circa 2013. So in the, in the Mt. Gox timeline, that was halfway to uh, it already collapsing. Uh, so in its final days, more or less. Uh, I was doing some investing 
quite poorly. And before I knew it, everything had just disappeared and the website was gone. So when you found out that the website was gone, how did you get to investigate that? Like, I can't even imagine like how you started your transaction tracking. Well, I mean, it, it was a bit of a, a bit of a journey. I mean, you don't immediately start with saying, oh, I'd better investigate this. But there was from the very beginning a sort of a shared concern, I think, with most Montgox users in that Bitcoin was new technology and everyone was sort of anxious if law enforcement would be able to investigate this because even like throughout the entire world, uh, it, there didn't necessarily exist any police departments that that would be Bitcoin savvy at that point in time, and especially not the Japanese police, which is perhaps it has a reputation of not being that fast to adapt. So that became sort of the starting point where if no one else is going to investigate this, perhaps we should give it a go in that it is Bitcoin after all. The, the, the ledger is public. There is a starting point where in a normal crime, you wouldn't be able to make any headway. But here, at least there was a starting point in that we have the blockchain. We can, we can look at things. And some people were leaking data about the exchange that looked like internal records. So with that as a starting point, there was at least something to do while waiting for any kind of official information. Were you using your own node to look at the blockchain? Were you using uh, blockchain explorers? No, I, I, I set up my own node to run this stuff. And I had to start writing own software to parse it because basically finding this stuff was initially just a game of statistics and just trying to scour massive, massive amounts of transactions at the same time just to try to find like patterns of uh, transactions leaving the Mongox wallet in bulk and things like that. Basically, it was a challenge to just find the patterns to begin with, which meant having to analyze uh, a lot of material in bulk. So that wouldn't have worked out with just an explorer because then you're looking at things one by one. And I'm sure that it was really like going down a rabbit hole for a while at the beginning, trying to find these patterns. What was one of the early moments where you thought, okay, I'm onto something, I'm making progress in, in looking at all this data and making sense of it? I'd say within the first year, which sounds like a long time, but in retrospect, everything seems so long ago now. But within the first year or so, I was looking at transactions going in and out and basically had started seeing the pattern of funds going to the same set of destination wallets. And that sort of started becoming the breakthrough. While I greatly appreciate your very courteous uh, introduction of me as some kind of spearhead, I wasn't the only person investigating this. And there have been firms investigating, making the same findings at the same time. So there was sort of multiple people as well finding the same things around the same time. Sets of transactions, moving funds out of the Montgox wallet towards certain recurring addresses. And then as I was tracing those further, I think the, the first major realization after that was noticing that this was actually connected to other thefts as well. So it wasn't just the stolen Mt. Gox coin. They were sort of joining the transaction flow from other Bitcoin thefts as well from the same time. And that was a bit of an eye-opening moment uh, in that it was clearly a big discovery in that this would sort of become the breakthrough, and perhaps not just of this case, but also explaining things like the Bitcoin theft, the BitFloor theft, other high-profile incidents at the same time was possibly being done by the same group of people. So all those money landed in the same wallets, right? Yeah. How did you find out what those wallets are? Because you built like a comprehensive scheme, like where the stolen money were going, how, how they were landing. One of the starting points for a lot of blockchain analysis, at least on the Bitcoin chain, is 
when you are sending transactions, you often spend multiple addresses at once as inputs. Uh, and that proves sort of a correlation that that usually means that they belong to the same person. So even though you're starting with just a set of thousands and thousands of addresses, once you start connecting them, each time one or two addresses are spent together, you start connecting them into, into clusters. Uh, and as you start doing that, sort of the overall shapes of presumed ownership starts taking form. So I made a graph of this flow coming out of Mt. Gox. And through that sort of work and grouping things together into larger and larger clusters, eventually it starts forming. So the, the big picture starts taking shape. And that's when you get a better feel for what actually happened. Because at the end of the day, while individual transactions uh, are sort of the, the unit of, of data points on the blockchain, what's interesting is rather which person sent money from which place to which other place. Most of the stolen money ended on another crypto exchange, which was called BTCE. As far as I know, your investigation at least partially led to the arrest of the BTCE operator, Alexander Vinnik, who was arrested in 2017 in Europe. I wouldn't take credit for it. Uh, like I said, there were multiple people investigating the same things, but it's definitely fair to say that the people who were chasing Vinnik were looking at the same discoveries I was making. And, and while I was trying to share my findings with law enforcement to help, help them catch people, it wasn't necessarily the same people that actually went after Vinnik. They were definitely looking at the same material and, and finding it credible to chase down this guy. BTCE also stopped operating. It's another long story, actually. As long as most of the stolen funds are basically inaccessible now, there is a smaller stash of Bitcoins that still belong to Mt. Gox after it was hacked that is now in the hands of the rehabilitation trustee, as, as far as I know. So back to our days, what is happening now in the rehabilitation process now? I guess yesterday there was another meeting of the creditors. Uh, can you bring us up to speed what's going on now? Right. The rehabilitation process of Mt. Gox has been quite a journey with many twists and turns. So it, it's become quite hard to follow along with it, uh, even for creditors who are covering this. To, to recap a bit, as you said, back in 2014, this all started with Mt. Gox filing for bankruptcy protection. That process was then converted to actual bankruptcy soon afterwards in 2014. And it was, for the first few years, running as a normal bankruptcy. An unusual aspect, though, of this bankruptcy is that there is quite a lot of money left in the estate. Normal Japanese bankruptcies, there's perhaps like 1% of assets left compared to liabilities. So there's not much money to distribute. There's not much pressure to get the money back, more or less, because everyone's sort of normal bankruptcies. You're, you don't expect to get any major payouts back. But in this case, it's something like 200,000 Bitcoins that was left, which is a huge amount of money. And when Bitcoin started appreciating in price, this led to a, a weird corner case of Japanese law in that while the assets of the Mt. Gox estate had exploded and ballooned into this massive amount of money, everyone's claims that they were owed back were still marketed at the original prices. So the bankruptcy was actually solvent again by the legal standard. Even though measured in bitcoins, no one would be getting paid back their, their actual owed amount. So working around that sort of absurdity has involved converting the bankruptcy back into civil rehabilitation, back into bankruptcy protection, essentially, which is where the process has been since 2018. 
All of that to say is basically just as a workaround for legal issues that have propped up throughout the process. That's where we are now. There's this quite convoluted process just trying to rehabilitate Mancox, even though the only rehabilitation step is to pay out all assets and then they will be done. So how divorced from the reality of what you and the other creditors put into Mt. Gox is the offer that's on the table now for a potential payout? So what we're looking at right now is that throughout all the twists and turns with, with having managed assets and the trustee has had to sell some of them, at the moment we're looking at something like projected payouts of 15% in Bitcoin terms. So wow. that is to say someone who had... 100 Bitcoins at Mt. Gox would be looking at realistically getting about 15, maybe 16, 17%. Well, that's something I would say <laughs> with the, it, with the new price. It sounds bad if you're measuring it in Bitcoin terms, but another way of looking at it, which many creditors have, have found some solace in at least, is you have been forced to hold these Bitcoins since 2014. So you're, you're also reaping the entire price appreciation of something where realistically, most people would have sold at some point if they had had control of those Bitcoins. But by the way, at least part of the creditors sold their claims because, for example, the, the fund called Fortress has been buying up claims. Do you have some estimate of what part of creditors have already sold their claims, which part is still holding to theirs? I don't know exactly. The claims buyers are not particularly public with how much they buy. As you say, there has developed a bit of a trading market for this, where things like funds and other investors are buying up claims, basically because they have a, a longer time preference in that they can afford to wait and figure that they'll get paid out the full amount, but maybe it'll take another five years or so. But if they figure they can wait, uh, they can make money by selling it to people who are perhaps not willing to wait. That having been said, I get the feeling that the overall amount that has been bought out from other creditors, uh, we're probably looking at double-digit percentages by now. Do you think it's less than half or more than half of all the claims? I would say less than half still. Okay. Many individual creditors with large claims are still there. And there's a very large group of smaller creditors who are not actively involved. And thus, they just retain their claims with, without actively selling anything. Do you have any guesses as to you know, how much longer this whole case could drag out before we reach a final conclusion? Like This has already become the dinosaur of crypto that's just, at least in my mind, always been there and always kind of just hanging over the industry. Uh, is there any sign that this could reach a resolution at any time soon? Or I would say there's not going to be any payouts in any short time frame or in the time frame that most creditors would consider fast enough. I don't think we're going to see any payouts in the next 12 months, for example. Part of what many creditors find so frustrating is the relatively slow pace at which uh, the Japanese courts and bankruptcy proceedings typically move at. This case is not particularly slower than any other bankruptcy proceeding in Japan. This is just how long things take, including court cases, which is another factor that is slowing down things here, and that there are active lawsuits over claims, which also take a ton of time to, to duke out in Japan. We're talking about the CoinLab lawsuit right here. So the CoinLab was a partner of Mt. Gox, and they're suing this now non-existent entity for a business uh, argument. Yeah, CoinLab entered into, or at least at, attempted to enter into a business arrangement with Mt. Gox back in 2012-2013 to basically become the U.S. arm of Mt. Gox and handle U.S. customers. And for a multitude of reasons, this partnership failed. Uh, but CoinLab has ever since 
than been trying to sue Mt. Gox. Even before the collapse, CoinLab was trying to sue Mt. Gox and basically get paid anyway and get paid damages for breaching this business agreement. And since the bankruptcy and civil rehabilitation has started, they have just become more and more extreme so that they're now suing the estate for billions and billions of dollars. Well, hopefully the Mt. Gox creditors get their money, become Bitcoin rich. And um, why don't we switch gears and talk with Kim about some other topics, other interesting stuff that came up this week? We could start the ball rolling in Canada. This uh, crypto exchange called CoinSquare, which is one of the country's biggest, just last week lost its fight to keep thousands of customer trading records out of the tax man's hands. This was a seven-month-long legal case. The Canada Revenue Agency, which is basically Canada's IRS, had been trying to get basically all of CoinSquare's customer records from dating back from 2013. So that's possibly 400,000 customers' records as part of a basically an audit where they wanted to make sure that people were actually paying their taxes on their cryptocurrency gains and reporting them correctly. The federal judge sided with CRA and said CoinSquare had to hand this over. And now CoinSquare says that they're going to basically protect 90 to 95% of the records. But that still means that as many as 40,000 records could be turned over to the CRA, who's going to look into and make sure that these people have been paying their taxes. What's interesting about this case is that it's got a lot of similarities to the Coinbase versus IRS case that happened in the US in 2016, there as well, the crypto exchange was saying that the tax man was going on a phishing expedition. They don't know that people broke the law. Why are they going after this information? Whereas the, the IRS, the tax collector was saying, we need this information to make sure people are following the law. So there, just like here, ultimately the judge ruled in the tax authority's favor. And that's a, a, definitely a loss for privacy, uh, and a win for the tax authority. So I'm wondering from you guys, because both these exchanges, Coinbase and CoinSquare, called their law, objective losses in court a win because they say, well, the tax authority wanted all of our, our records and we negotiated it down. So it's just a little sliver. Is that actually a win? Is losing in court, but saying, well, we, we're protecting everyone but the biggest whales on our platform. Is that really a good thing in your mind? I personally think it's only the beginning, you know, you, you start with 10, 20% of your clients, uh, you know, next time you're going to reveal more. It does look like a trend. We're talking about just two exchanges into two countries right now, but more and more governments are starting to pay close attention to crypto, you know, new tax laws, new regulations are getting proposed. I think we're going to see more regulators knocking the doors of more exchanges pretty soon. I wonder, you know, Kim, you've been in crypto by all measures forever. You don't say, do you miss the good old times where there was no this regulatory talk whatsoever? Well, I mean, I, th I think this has been a long time coming to some degree unavoidable uh, because even back in the good old days, it's not like the tax authorities were not looking at crypto. They were, of course, seeing the, the writing on the wall that people were moving a lot of money through this. So, of course, they were interested in it. But I think it's just taken this many years for them to get the ball rolling to actually get to, to exert influence over the industry. And it's not surprising at all that it's tax that's the first 
sort of wedge in the in, in the door to get a foot in the door. Courts and the government in general are, of course, sympathetic to the argument that they should be able to extract tax. That's that's what they do. That's what's funding the government. So this is for sure. This has it's been, from my viewpoint, it, it's just been a long time coming. It's been very expected. It's this road of loss of financial privacy that's going to be the, the biggest battlefield over crypto, I think, over this decade. So this loss of financial privacy, in your view, it's a negative process? Oh, for, for sure. I mean, because even though the government is surely making a, a valid argument as far as the court is concerned, that the law says you should pay tax on your income. So you have to, you have to be able to verify that, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's damaging the very concept of why Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are, are useful and powerful in that if you go down that road, the, the next step for sure is going to be, well, they're already pressuring exchanges to blacklist addresses. The next step will probably be that forcing exchanges not to accept deposits unless you're a whitelisted address, unless you can show proof of where your funds come from. We're, we're already there for in, in the case of some exchanges. So down that road, before long, entire blockchains and entire cryptocurrencies will be crippled to the point of becoming hard to use for anything except small-scale speculation and trading between exchanges, at which point a lot will have been lost of the biggest benefit of the cryptocurrencies. And we're already seeing that play out just a couple days ago with this news that South Korea would be implementing pretty strict new uh, anti-money laundering requirements on exchanges. OKEX, which is one of the biggest exchanges in South Korea, announced that it was uh, shutting down because the, the guidelines are just too, too strong or they're too stringent, in, uh, in their opinion, for them to keep their business going. So they're basically throwing in the towel saying the regulation is getting too burdensome and we can't take it. Look, but there is still this entire separate world of people trading peer-to-peer, of uh, non-custodial marketplaces. Maybe it's not as big regarding trading volumes as the centralized exchanges, but it still exists, I guess. Kim, I wonder if you ever use centralized exchanges, crypto services that also gather your uh, KYC information. I, I've definitely used exchanges, uh, for sure, uh, more so back in the day. These days, I don't trade much. I don't have much Bitcoin, honestly. Once I get Mt. Gox payouts, I'll have some, but I'll probably just hold it. So it, it doesn't immediately affect people like me now. Like if you're not trading, if you're not trying to sell your coins, of course, you don't run into the issues. It will become more and more of an issue if, if you one day do look to sell your coins in that if exchanges have made it impossible to trade in old coins where you can't prove their, their provenance, for example. As you say, there are still decentralized places. Those will continue developing. It will kind of have the effect of turning the market into two parallel ecosystems. Uh, it remains to be seen if they will eventually come to a head and, and fight out for dominance or what will happen if we'll see technical developments that make it harder to, to prove the provenance of any coins and what will be the regulatory response to that, for example. So there's still a lot of battles to be fought and we don't know yet what the end result will be. Yeah, that's really interesting to watch. Another country is trying to get cryptocurrencies right. India you know, all eyes are on India. Is it going to just ban any cryptocurrencies other than the government issued one? Is it going to ban IP addresses associated with crypto exchanges? Even such rumors have been circulating around. And it looks like not many people really care, but India is actually a huge market. 
I just discovered that India is the largest online market in the world. And it has a huge population that is tech savvy, that is young, that is using very cheap internet, uh, including mobile internet on every smartphone. You know, what happens there probably going to impact what happens with the rest of the crypto world. I don't know. What do you guys think? Is India going to be harsh on cryptocurrencies? I mean, they've been speaking about their plans to ban crypto for so long now. It feels like every month or so we get another story about uh, this proposed ban taking shape. I imagine they're going to go through with it. I really don't know what that's going to fully look like. It might actually look like them just saying no more exchanges are permitted. I just don't understand how they would successfully blockade Bitcoin as like keeping it from coming into the country. I mean, you'd have to really clamp down on the internet to do that. I think it's usually hard to really kill off a market, especially when it's a market of a better product than the one that you're pushing as the alternative. In this case, uh, one of the big beneficial properties of cryptocurrencies is that they're harder currencies, basically. And that's going to be hard to stamp out. Even if you make it illegal, people will be trading it behind the scenes. You would have to enact some pretty draconian technical measures to try to prevent it physically from, from happening. So it, it'll still be there. India might perhaps not be a country at the forefront of cryptocurrency if they're trying to ban it this hard. People will still be using it, but they will probably just not be any of the countries pushing the envelope on this front. There's perhaps a risk for India falling behind if cryptocurrencies do continue this road towards becoming more and more important in the, in the financial industry. Yeah, apparently. Well, let's see what they come up with. In the meantime, something is brewing up in Turkey as well. Yes. And uh, speaking of uh, cryptocurrency being a better version of fiat, I mean, it, it's almost like you're reading our stories, Kim. In Turkey, uh, President Erdogan, one of his favorite activities is booting his own central bankers because he likes to be uh, in control of the monetary policy, which is never a good idea to have the politicians run the central banks. But that's exactly what Erdogan's doing. He booted the central banker. Uh, because he didn't like how fast interest rates were rising. And in response, the lira is tanking. Uh, and Turkish crypto users are using this as an opportunity to transfer some of their wealth into cryptocurrency because they're thinking, well, you know, Bitcoin might be volatile, but hell, it's better than the lira. So they're leaving the lira, they're moving into Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And the numbers are showing that this tr trend really is happening. CEX.io, which is a British exchange, has reported a 783% uptick in the rate of Turkish uh, signups uh, just in the last few weeks. As uh, Turks are leaving, well, not, they're not fully leaving the lira, but they're moving into Bitcoin because they've had enough of this uncertainty and of this volatility with their national currency. So, I mean, Kim, we already know your thoughts on Bitcoin being a superior form to fiat, but I guess I'm, I'm wondering from a practical standpoint, could we ever be living in a world where, and maybe in Turkey or, for example, people will be exchanging Bitcoin for goods? Like, do you think that we could move past fiat currencies and into a Bitcoin economy? Because people are certainly thinking that it's at least worth their time and money from the store of value. Well, when fiat currencies destabilize, you typically see the formation of spontaneous barter economies. And even if we don't see Bitcoin as, or other cryptocurrencies as normal trade currencies in their own right, I would still fully expect some people to start trading them 
for goods directly, as you're saying, even if entire stores and the system on a whole might not adopt Bitcoin as and starting to put Bitcoin price tags on things, people would definitely start trading it between themselves. I saw an article that uh, President Erdogan was asking people to sell their gold and keep it in lira instead to support the currency, which is basically just asking his citizens to become the crash bumper of his crashing economy. But he's uh, asking them to have fun staying poor, I guess you could say. <laughs> What's interesting here is that Bitcoin is actually denominated in the US dollar, at least in many countries, it's the case. So if your national currency is tanking, that the Bitcoin price is rising for you, like your salary is in the national currency. So Bitcoin becomes more expensive for you to buy. But people still buy in Bitcoin even at those higher prices, which might mean they're quite pessimistic and maybe even desperate about their national currency. So that's something. Well, it looks like it's a good point to wrap things up. Guys, don't have fun staying poor. Remember the persistence of the Mount Gox hodlers when you feel like losing faith in Bitcoin? See you next week. Please subscribe to Coindesk Reports podcast feed and let us know if you like this podcast. Thank you for joining us, Kim. It was amazing chat. Thank you. Nice talking with you. Great speaking with you. Bye, everyone. See you next week. You've been listening to Borderless, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode featured Anna Badakova, Danny Nelson, and guest Kim Nielsen with an announcement by Lila Ledesma. Today's show is produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with music by Cody Martin. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service and talk to us directly via email at podcast at coindesk.com.